amen. I've got Jesus. How could I want more? You know, you got all of God when you came to faith in Jesus. Did you know that? Sometimes people say in the Christian walk, well, I just need more of God in my life. But the reality is when you came to faith in Jesus, God gave you all of himself, all of himself. And so now as you're growing in your faith, the question is how much of yourself have you given to him? And so progressively we're growing in Christ's image. The spirit of God is conforming us into Christ's image if you're a Christian. That's the promise of the word. And uh, each and every day, the Lord gives us opportunity. He uses the circumstances of life to conform us and to mold us and shape us into Christ's image. Well, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. If you are a guest this morning, we are so thrilled to have you with us. Uh, Last several weeks, we've been in a series from Ephesians chapter 6, looking at the individual pieces of the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 is a passage of Scripture that deals with this very important subject of spiritual warfare. That is, life involves spiritual conflict. There is an enemy who wars against your soul, and the Apostle Paul tells us how that enemy is to be met here in this sixth chapter of Ephesians. And so the armor of God, this is really a dynamic metaphor that's used to describe the power and the protection that belong to those who by faith are being kept in Christ. So if the conflict is spiritual and our enemy is satanic in nature, then it demands that you and I as believers have strong spiritual defenses. And Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given us all things in Christ that pertain to life and godliness. Again, you've got Jesus, how could you want more? You've been given everything that is necessary for spiritual growth and godliness. And so now we simply need to put on this armor that's been given to us in Christ day in and day out, and we do that by faith. And so we've already seen three of these individual pieces of armor that are mentioned in this passage. And this morning, I want us to look at a fourth piece of armor uh, known as the shield of faith, which is described in verse number 16. So let's read, beginning with verse number 13. The Bible says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so here the um, Apostle Paul outlines the believer's armor. The armor of God which is given to every Christian Every person who is in Jesus Christ has been graciously supplied with this armor. And so that's true of your position in Christ. Well, now, practically, we've got to appropriate by faith uh, these individual pieces of armor. Each day that we live presents us with a new opportunity to indeed put on the whole armor of God. And every piece is necessary. And so if you remember, we began looking at that first piece, which is described as being the belt of truth. Uh, The belt sort of fastens everything together, and there's a picture of how the truth of God sort of holds everything in place in a person's life. That was followed up by the breastplate of righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus Christ himself is our righteousness. That is, as a Christian, when you came to faith in Christ, God gave you the righteousness of Christ. And so the theological term for this is called imputation or the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that there's a gracious exchange that's taken place in your life if you're a Christian. God made Christ who is perfect and sinless in every way. He made him to be our sin on the cross, dying in our place as our substitute, our perfect righteous substitute, so that now, if you've placed your faith and trust in him, uh, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so it's a righteousness which is not your own. It's not a self-righteousness that's being described. It's the righteousness of Christ given to you as a Christian man or a woman. And then that actually is practical because if you've been clothed in the righteous garments of Jesus, then now part of you putting on this breastplate of righteousness every day involves the practical outworking of Christ's righteousness in your life. Uh, The third piece of armor we looked at uh, were the shoes of the gospel, or specifically the shoes of the readiness which comes through the gospel of peace. And so the idea there being one of mobility and stability. Uh, Roman soldiers in Paul's day Uh, had studded sandals that they wore that sort of gave them traction on the battlefield as they squared off with their enemies. And so that's what the gospel does in a person's life. It gives you stability. In a world that's constantly changing, where the opinions of humanity are frequently changing and shifting like sand, we are able to stand firm in the shoes of gospel peace. And these shoes then make us mobile also as believers We're committed to the gospel and we're to take that gospel to the ends of the earth and share the good news of salvation in Christ. And so that then brings us to verse 16 and this shield of faith which is being described there. And notice again what the Apostle Paul says. He says, in all circumstances. Other translations may say it this way, above all, take up this shield of faith. That is, in every circumstance that you find yourself in. Above all, this is of utmost importance, Paul says, take up this shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And so I want us to spend the remainder of our time then looking at this shield of faith and what is it exactly that's meant by this uh, illustration. 
Now, I did hear Dr. David Jeremiah say something interesting, how a lot of professing believers, you would think that this passage of Scripture says something like this. Lay back and relax with the belt of evasion buckled loosely around your waist. With the breastplate of defensiveness in place, and with your feet fitted with the pluralism that offends nobody. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of grudges with which you can hold on tightly to your hurts and slights. Take the helmet of entitlement and the bludgeon of the flesh, which is the word of anger, and then air what's been done to you on all occasions with all kinds of criticisms and complaints. Now, that's somewhat uh, humorous, but... In reality, there's a lot of people who approach life that way. That's the flimsy armor that they put on every day. But that's not the armor of God that's being described here. And so I can't help but wonder if that's just characteristic of so many people who, who approach life in such a negative fashion. But Paul wants believers to know the resources that, that we've been given by God, and that's a positive thing. And while he does not deny the reality of life in a fallen world where there is indeed evil and there is conflict and we experience disappointment and spiritual assault from the evil one, what Paul is doing in this passage, he's preparing us for that day. The evil day when it comes. And this is why the shield of faith is so very important. Now, we tend to associate faith with sort of believing a set of facts. We associate faith only in terms of belief in this intellectual sense. But from a biblical standpoint, faith is acting upon belief, not merely from an intellectual perspective. Yes, there are certain things that you believe, but real belief is acting upon that belief so that uh, it becomes central to your life. And that your life is reoriented around what you say you believe. So the idea is it's because I believe in something that I act upon that belief. And then that faith is very, very real. Uh, this is why James says what he does in his New Testament epistle. Uh, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's lifeless. He's not saying that we're saved by our works. He's not contradicting what Paul has written in Romans where he says that it's by faith that we're justified only faith in Christ that's what justifies a person but the idea is if that's true in your life then there will be corresponding works of faith obedient actions that will follow that faith and serve as tangible proof of that faith and so the faith then that's under description here in verse number 16, this is acting upon one's belief in Jesus Christ. And remember this armor of God, really it's, it's Jesus who's the armor of God for every believer. Jesus is our belt of truth. Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our shoes of gospel peace. And so now then, this shield of faith that's being described, uh, this is decision, this is action, this is resolve, which is based upon these spiritual realities. And as such, it acts as a shield with which you and I fend off the enemy's attacks against our soul. Now again, you remember by way of context, more than likely, Paul, as he's writing these words, uh, he's under house arrest, 
Some have even said that perhaps Paul is chained to a Roman soldier as he's writing the book of Ephesians. And if that's so, man, that would just provide a wonderful illustration of what a Roman soldier would look like and how he would be dressed as Paul is writing these words. Here you have a soldier perhaps right there before him. And then you add to that the consideration that Paul, as a Jew, he understands the Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah and how he is the divine warrior who will come and take on Satan and defeat Satan, sin, and death. And so all of that being considered, in Paul's day, the Roman army used a shield that was, it was four feet long, it was roughly two and a half feet wide, rectangular, it was made of wood, and uh, it had been covered in animal hide. The edges were trimmed with iron, and oftentimes the, the hide of those animal skins would be soaked in water prior to battle so that the soldier could put out those flaming arrows or poisonous arrows that the enemy would launch his way. And then you had all of those Roman soldiers who, when they would march in a column, uh, they would sort of lock their shields together with one another and form somewhat of a wall and cover overhead, and they would move forward against the enemy, and this formation was known as the Roman phalanx. Uh, The Greeks really perfected this even before the Romans, but it involved soldiers standing side by side in ranks And just before the contact with the enemy happened, they would move together so close that each man's shield would help to protect the man to his left and the man to his right. Now you use that in in your mind as an illustration of what the church ought to be. And how as each of us, as individual Christian men and women, are wielding the the shield of faith... In no way does this imply that I'm sort of this lone ranger Christian who's to go at life all by myself. Men and women, you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. You need the family of God. Because, uh, let's just face it, if the enemy can isolate you from the rest of the body, you're prime picking. But, It's different when we come together as men and women of God who wield the shield of faith together. And so I need you, and you need me, and we need one another, and that's what the church is intended to be. Now beyond this, if you even go back to the Old Testament, you'll notice how the Bible frequently presents us with the imagery of a shield as it sort of presents God in relationship to his people. And the very first time that you see that word shield mentioned in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, where the Lord says to Abraham, as he's making him the promise, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You look up into the night sky, you see the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there you have justification by faith, and so it's not by coincidence that God says to Abraham in that passage, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. You read through Psalms and you'll see that many of the Psalms repeat this same theme. Psalm 3 verse 3, you hear our choir and orchestra, they sing this from time to time. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me my glory, and the lifter of my head. 
Psalm 28, verse seven, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. Psalm 33, verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Psalm 119, 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. And so over and over again, you see this theme, God is the shield for those who trust in him. But perhaps the closest parallel to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6 would be Psalm 91. In fact, I want you to turn there for just a moment in your Bibles. Go to the Old Testament. Go to Psalm number 91. Because this is a psalm that that deals with a believer who finds himself under attack from warfare. I remember on the one-year anniversary of September 11th, I hadn't been a pastor for, I don't know, five or six months, something like that, and we had a one-year anniversary memorial service on a Wednesday night that year. Church was packed. We had first responders, police officers, uh, folks from the fire department who was there, and I remember I shared a message from Psalm 91, verse 1, and I called it God's 911 address. Now you think about that, how appropriate this is. What is God's 911 address? Listen, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That means God's our shield. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a what? It's a shield and a buckler. And because of that, you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So the psalmist is expressing his confidence in the Lord who is his shield from the enemy. And that's the same truth that's being driven home here in Ephesians 6, verse 16. God is our refuge. God is our shield He's our hiding place in the midst of life's storms and his faithfulness will keep us safe even when we're the target of the enemy's flaming arrows. Now I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Ephesians 6 in the message. He says this, so take everything that the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the very best materials and put them to use so that you will be able to stand up to these spiritual forces of evil. This is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all of his angels, so be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. And so the gospel tells us that the devil has been defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ and it's as we trust in him and his triumph that we actually put on this armor of the gospel. The armor that Satan would very much like for us to abandon both as individual men and women as well as the church. And so that's why verse 16 says we've got to take up this shield of faith. Notice we've got to be intentional 
And that requires that we understand three very important uh, points. And what are those? Well, point number one, we need to understand the object of the Christian's faith. If we're to take up the shield of faith, well, notice with me the object of the Christian's faith. Now, there's a lot of talk about faith and its importance, but what exactly do you mean when you say that faith is important to you? Because faith is something that must be defined. You know, you hear people say stuff like this from time to time. Well, as long as you have faith, that's all that matters. Or faith will see us through. And you know, that might look good on an Instagram post, but it really doesn't mean anything. Because faith is no better than its object. Faith is not all that matters. Faith in Christ is all that matters. Faith will not see us through. It's faith in Christ that will see us through. And so if we're to take up the shield of faith, as Paul says here, we need to know what he's talking about. We need to know what that faith is. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Uh, Nor is it belief in spite of a lack of evidence. Some people think that that's what faith is. It's It's just believing in spite of evidence. Let me tell you something. There is plenty of evidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Both objectively, because history, we still measure the calendar year in terms of his appearing. Objectively, the tomb of Jesus is still empty. What are you going to do with it? Objectively, you've got the witness of the apostles, eyewitness testimony to the validity and the truthfulness of the gospel. And then subjectively, what are you going to do with the life change that the gospel has brought about in the countless lives of millions upon millions upon millions of people? So don't tell me there's no evidence for faith. There's plenty of evidence. Biblical faith, it's not believing in spite of a lack of evidence, biblical faith is believing in spite of consequence. Biblical faith is the conviction that something is actually so in spite of evidence that sometimes seems to point to the contrary. Biblical faith is the assurance that something is real even when it cannot be physically perceived. And I think perhaps my favorite definition of faith was the definition given to faith by Manly Beasley, that great evangelist. What did he say? He said that faith is acting as if something is so when it seems not to be so in order for it to be so because God said it is so. Now read that again. Faith is acting as if something is so when it seems not to be so in order for it to be so because God said it is so. That's the type of faith which the great heroes of the faith mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the faith they possessed. That great definition of faith given in Hebrews chapter 11, verses one and two. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. The evidence of things hoped for. The very faith by which the elders obtained a good report. And then you go down through the line and you see the men and women whose names are mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11. They believed the promise of God even though they were swimming upstream. Even though from time to time it didn't seem to make sense from a physical, material perspective. No, they believed the promise of God. Good illustration of this. Let's just imagine that you're wandering around in the desert. Your throat is parched with thirst. 
You know, your, your mouth is dry, your tongue is cleaving to the roof of your mouth, you're about to die of thirst, but just up ahead, you suddenly spot a water pump in the middle of nowhere. And so as you get closer, you notice that there's a canteen that's hanging from the pump handle. And attached to that canteen, there's a note which says this, beneath your feet is all the water you will ever need. But the pump will not work unless it's primed with water. This canteen contains exactly enough water to prime the pump. So you take the canteen in your hand, you, you shake it, you hear the water sloshing around inside, and so you're immediately faced with a decision, aren't you? Will you believe the note and do what it says? What if it's a hoax? What if it's just a ruse? What if there's nothing but dry sand beneath the pump? If you trust the message of the note, then you could literally be pouring your life away. And so will you pay, place your trust in what you can see, what you can touch, what you can hear, or will you place your trust in a promise? Now, folks, that's biblical faith. But let me tell you, it's concrete. Uh, it's not merely abstract and hypothetical. This is concrete God has given unto us precious promises, and the Bible says that all of the promises find their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of all gospel promise. And so the question is, will you believe the promise and prime the pump? Jesus said, I am living water. You're dying of thirst, you got people, they're, they're, they're running to all kinds of fountains that they think today will satisfy the inner longings of their heart and their soul, but it's nothing but a mirage. It's nothing but sand. But you see, in this gospel promise, you've got the promise from Jesus himself. If you come to me, I will be in you a living well of water springing up that will never, ever run dry so why thirst to death in the desert of this world? Come to Christ and live. And so the shield of faith then uh, understands this. Now, keep in mind who Paul's writing to here. He's not writing just to the general, the general citizens of the city of Ephesus. No, he's writing specifically to believers, those who had believed the promise of God in the gospel. He's addressing those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby they were saved. If you go back just a couple of chapters, go to chapter 1, verse 15. Look at what he says there in his introductory remarks to these believers in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So what is it that Paul says that he had heard? Well, he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. So there's the object then of their faith. How have they come to place their faith in Jesus? Well, go back up just a couple of verses and look at what he says. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the object of their faith is Jesus. At some point, they had heard the gospel of Jesus, and they responded to that gospel by believing the gospel. In faith, they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a result, they're brought from death to life. 
So that when you get to chapter 2, that's precisely what Paul is pointing out when he says, formerly you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy out of the great love with which he has loved us has made us alive together in Christ. So prior to faith, they were spiritually dead. It's not the difference between religion and irreligion. Biblical faith is not just that you're a religious person and someone says, well, I'm just not religious. Let me tell you something. Every person alive on the planet is religious. You're religious about something. You say, what do you mean? There's something that is ultimate to you. There is something that you seek to build your life upon and around. So you're religious by that definition. And the reason for that, you've been made in the image of God. You've been created to worship And even lost in your sin, you're going to worship something. The problem is, it's not God. The only way that you come to know God and worship the one true God is by repenting of your sin. And in faith, Jesus Christ is the object of your faith. And the Bible says when that's true of you, you're brought from death to life. You're made alive in Christ And so we need to keep that in mind as the church when we're about gospel ministry. It's not that we want to see irreligious people become religious. No, I want to see dead people live again. I want to see people whose lives have been shipwrecked upon uh, the rocks of sin and death whom the evil one has blinded spiritually. I want to see them brought to life in Jesus Christ whereby Christ is the object of their faith. And so the classic verse there in chapter 2, Paul says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul's saying God did something for you. When you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel and you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you placed your faith and trust in Christ, you're brought from death into life. And Paul says this is the gift of God and his grace. If you're in the dark this morning, if you're in the desert this morning, if the object of your faith, you can't really determine who or what it is, listen, listen to good news. Jesus saves sinners. What good gospel news that is. So you've got then this shield of faith which illustrates the object of a Christian's faith. Now, a second thing, uh, the opposition to the Christian's faith. You need to understand that faith is no better than its object, but understand also the opposition to this faith which is being described in verse 16. The source of opposition is mentioned there, the evil one. So he's not referring to evil in the abstract sense, but evil personified. The reason that there are evil principles at work in the world lies in the fact that there are evil personalities in league with Satan. And they're described there uh, in chapter 6, back up in verse number 12, where Paul says, we're wrestling not against flesh and blood. The enemy's not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual in nature. And yet this enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that now they're in league with him. And so we've got this evil enemy who opposes us at every point and seeks our demise. 
And Paul wants you to know that's why you need this shield of faith. Because if you're not careful, you can find yourself going through the motions of life. You know, you get up, you get dressed, you take the kids to school, you go to work, you go home, you do the same thing the next day, and you repeat that cycle over and over again. And then you add to this the nonstop barrage of emails that you get and text messages that you respond to, grocery shopping lists. And, and, and before long, you can find yourself just immersed in this material mindset, living as if this physical world were all that mattered. And so then you come to a verse like verse 16, and you think, well, this doesn't seem to make very much sense. Well, it probably doesn't make sense to you because you've been immersed in a material mindset, and you've been operating out of a sense that all that really is real is what you see with your own two eyes. And the Bible screams the opposite. That's why Paul says in every circumstance you need to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Because the evil one has set his sights on you. He's made you his target and he aims his flaming darts in your direction. Now Peter O'Brien, who is a commentator in his commentary on Ephesians 6, has said that the large shield that was used by Roman soldiers... It was specially designed to quench dangerous missiles, particularly arrows that were dipped in pitch and lit before being fired. These flaming missiles often inflicted deadly wounds or wreaked havoc among soldiers unless the shields had been soaked with water and were able to quench them. So he's using an illustration from from warfare in his day. But O'Brien goes on and says this, here, these burning arrows that are described, they describe in highly metaphoric language every kind of attack launched by the devil and his host against the people of God. They are as wide-ranging as the insidious wiles that promote them, and they include not only every kind of temptation to ungodly behavior, doubt, and despair, but also external assaults, such as persecution, or false teaching, and that kind of thing. And so someone says, well, what does Paul mean when he's referring to these flaming darts of the evil one? What form do they often take? Well, let me just give you a few examples. There's the flaming arrow of fear, often that Satan will launch in your direction. And they come in the form of thoughts that will bombard your mind And he'll say something along these lines. You know, you've got a good reason to be afraid now and always so that you live your life just in this grip of fear. That's a flaming arrow from the evil one who wants to destroy you. And then there's the flaming arrow of doubt. Well, that's the first arrow that he uses against humanity in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Has God really said Can you really trust God's word or that he's going to work in your situation for your good. There's the flaming arrow of lust that Satan launches your way. And he'll fill your mind with these types of suggestive thoughts along these lines that say, well, you know, you've just got to have your needs met, and this is a fine way of you getting your needs met. What about the flaming arrow of loneliness? There are a lot of lonely people in a world of eight billion citizens but Satan wants to isolate us from each other and make us lonely and miserable there's the flaming arrow of jealousy 
And Satan will whisper in your ear something to the effect, well, you know, you're not being shown the devotion that you really deserve. And so at the right time, somebody else is getting the devotion that should rightly be yours. There's the flaming arrow of rejection. And we could just go on down the list. The flaming arrow of guilt or greed and covetousness where he whispers this subtle temptation into your mind, well, you know, you really ought to have that. You know you can't afford it, but don't worry about it. They make these things that are plastic in nature. So just swipe the card. Anger, discouragement, pride. Well, we could just go on down the list, couldn't we? All of these flaming arrows of the evil one. And the purpose Behind these attacks, Satan wants to destroy you. Now, folks, this is why you've got to have this gospel shield of faith that you wield every day. Each and every day, because there will never be a time in your life where you don't need it. Now, listen, here's good news. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That means you'll never get in a situation where you can use as a cop-out this excuse, the devil made me do it. It's like saying to your teacher, the dog ate my homework. The devil made me do it. No, God is faithful, who with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. And what's that way of escape? It's the same thing that Paul's describing here in Ephesians 6, verse 16. It's taking up that shield of faith so that you can fend off those fiendish arrows that are launched your way from the devil. And so the object of the Christian's faith, the opposition to the Christian's faith, one last thing, notice with me the occasion for the Christian's faith. This verse has something to say about the occasion for our faith because notice he says, in every circumstance, take up the shield of faith. Or above all, take up the shield of faith. Again, that means that there will never be a day in your life where you don't need this gospel armor. Don't ever get to this point in your life where you think you can coast and you think, you know, I think I can handle these darts from Satan on my own, in my own strength. No, you're no match for the devil. Luther said this in his hymn, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. That great hymn, the mighty fortress, is our God. He's referring to Christ. He's referring to the victory that we stand in, the victory that was achieved by Jesus and his triumph. And so the only way that I can fend off these attacks against my soul is to find my strength and my spiritual resources in the Lord Jesus, all while reminding myself that Christ has won the victory and Satan is a defeated enemy. Now God's provided you this armor. He's given you this shield. But notice, you've got to take it up. Paul's words are clear here. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So there's personal responsibility here on my part that each day that I live in every circumstance in which I find myself, I need the strength of God to take up this shield of faith, especially when the enemy is attacking. Now, two two things I want to mention to you before I finish up. All right? What are they? Well, here it is. Number one, you need to remember that the source of your faith is in Jesus alone. 
if, if every occasion calls for you to wield the shield of faith, how do you do that? Well, you've got to remember that the source of your faith is Christ alone. Again, you, you're not placing your faith in faith. Faith is not turned inward toward itself. Faith is only as strong as its object. Chuck Lawless has said that no one piece of this armor of God is insignificant and we ignore any single piece to our peril. If we choose not to wear any piece, we leave a gaping hole for the enemy to attack. He's shrewd. He's a schemer who seeks such openings and he aims at our vulnerable areas. And systematically, he tries to weaken us one fall at a time. And let's be honest, many are falling down around us to our left and to our right. Now, folks, I'll be honest. I don't think that it's by coincidence that just the last two years, I can name pastor after ministry leader after pastor who have fallen morally and publicly, and, and it's really given the secular media just this opportunity to pounce and say, I just wonder if there's really anything to this Christianity business. Whether it be falling through some type of sexual sin that's made public, or whether it be lack of faithfulness with ministry dollars, and embezzling funds that were given for ministry or using those funds for, for ridiculous purposes. I mean, it's just been one scandalous story after another. So what do we do? We do what Paul is saying here in this passage. We put on the armor of God as God's people. And don't you think for one second that you're too big to fall. Don't you think for one second that, well, that might happen to someone else, but it could never happen to me. Don't you for one second say, well, I would never do that. Because when you use that kind of proud, boastful language, Satan is listening. And let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I need to wield this shield of faith in every circumstance in my life. And we need one another as the body of Christ. We need accountability. We need to hold one another responsible. You need to have some people in your life who have the freedom to speak openly and candidly and honestly with you and don't adopt the spirit of the age that just wants to be so defensive that you can't take any word of criticism that may come your way because it may just be someone's trying to warn you of something that they see but that the enemy perhaps has blinded you to. And so I need you and you need me and together we need each other and we've got to lift this shield of faith up as we're on the march for Jesus. So remember that he is the source of our faith. And then notice, you need to recognize that the strengthening of your faith, this is something to be exercised. Remember the source, but recognize that the strengthening of your faith, this is an opportunity. Did you know every circumstance, every temptation that comes your way, every painful ordeal that you experience, do you know that that's never wasted opportunity with God? But that as a Christian man or a woman, it's an opportunity for your faith muscles to be strengthened. Now oftentimes I think we perhaps are hard on ourselves, we feel guilty and we think, well, I just don't have much faith. Oh, that my faith would increase. You ever felt like that? 
two or three years ago, Anita and I, we made a road trip. We went up north, went to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and the chocolate factory and all of that. We drove through the Pennsylvania countryside, and we went up and we stayed in Erie, Pennsylvania, right on the shores of Lake Erie. And it was February. And so by the time we got there, there was already snow on the ground, but they were forecasting like a foot of snow overnight. And so I, I was just thrilled. But we, we actually went out to Lake Erie. It was bitterly cold. The lake was frozen over. And I parked and I told Anita, I said, let's, let's walk out there on that ice. Now, I'll be honest, we were both nervous about it. Until I looked out in the distance and I saw three or four four-by-four four trucks that were out there parked on the ice. And there were some guys out there in these little, you know, cottages. And they, were, they were ice fishing. So we walked out on Lake Erie that was frozen over. Now, I heard David Jeremiah say this, and I thought it was such a good illustration. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a whole lot of faith in about a half inch of ice? And a whole lot of faith that that half inch of ice could hold you up, say it's Lake Erie or wherever? Or would you rather have a little bit of faith in a foot of ice? Now you see the point. Sometimes we're hard on ourselves. We think we've got little faith. Jesus said if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, we could say to this mountain, be thou removed, and it would be removed into the midst of the sea. So folks, listen to me. It's not so much the size of your faith that matters as much as it is the object of your faith. In whom have you placed your faith and your trust and your confidence? When you stand before God, on judgment day and you say Lord and he says to you well why should I let you into my heaven what are you going to say what will you say was the object of your faith will you say well I trusted in my good deeds I was a religious person I gave money to the church because that's that's an insufficient object of faith what you need is a true object and the only object of saving faith is Jesus Christ alone. And if you've come to know him, then every day is an opportunity for you to wield that shield of faith, to fend off the enemy's fiery arrows launched your way, and it's an opportunity for your faith muscles to be strengthened and to grow. And that's going to be a lifelong process for the children of faith. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? One of my favorite hymns says something to the effect, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And that's the shield of faith. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Is he truly the object of your faith? If not, then listen, why not today? Right there where you are in an attitude of repentance, confess your sin to God and place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to sing here in just a moment. Some of you maybe need to respond to this invitation. If you need to be saved. You want to go public with your new faith in Christ and be baptized? You can join the rest of these. Tonight, be baptized out in the courtyard. 
Why don't you get that settled today before you leave this place? I'll be here at the front. Our other pastors will be here just to the side, off to my side, to my left, to my right. You can come pray with us. Even after the service is over, come see one of us and talk to us about placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're a Christian and you just find yourself in just the, I mean the thick of it. The war is raging around you. Feels like all hell has broken loose in your life and wow, you've just sensed those fiery missiles from the enemy being launched your way from every direction. Be encouraged with this gospel armor, this shield of faith. It's yours. It's yours. It's been given to you. Wield it in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for your word. May you change us. Make us more like Christ each and every day that we live, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.